what the world needs to see, I've entitled this morning's message. What does the world see? What does the world see when it sees Christianity? What does the world see today when it sees you or me or you or I? What, what, what is it that they're seeing? I think if you observe a few things in the world that you and I are living in today, in this century, we'd find out that the world sees religion, and it frequently says this, as the source of all of man's problems. The world today is looking at the source of war being the result of religion. It is looking at Christianity and, and all the things that have to do with God as being the source of man's problems. I think the world, as it looks today at religion and at Christianity, included in that category for a moment this morning, sees a lot of confusion. It sees a lot of bickering and fighting. I think as it observes and we look at the world and what it at least comments on, it sees in reality, and they would say this to you, I see nothing more than the world dressed up in the name of Christianity because there's no difference. It doesn't matter. Their lives are the same. Their services are the same. I can get that anywhere. And the world, as it looks at us, has a perspective. And I want you to see this morning that the world is supposed to be looking at us. But I also want to remind you right in the introduction this morning that when you go back in time and you see creation, God had established man to be a witness and testimony to who he is. In fact, in time, as we saw that the wickedness of man was continuous, and every thought and intent of the heart was wicked continually, that's not too encouraging, but God sent a man aside, and through the seed of Abraham, he established, and we knew, the nation of Israel. Why? So that Israel would be different. So that as all the other nations of the world would look at the nation of Israel, they would see the God of Israel. They wouldn't just see another people like everybody else. And Israel had lost that through its history. In fact, at the beginning, if you think of it, even in the Exodus and so forth, again, introductory, what you find out is that the nations began to fear them. Why? They said it. You can read it in your Bible. They feared the God of the Israelites. They saw how God was working in their lives. And they saw that they were a people that were different and were blessed by God, and they began to fear them. And yet as time went along, that dissipated. Well, when we get to Christianity, let me remind ourselves right in the beginning this morning, of some things. Jesus said this right in our context. In verse 17, which I did not read this morning and where we left off last week, Jesus said, The world cannot receive the Holy Spirit. You look at it in verse 17. The world cannot receive that Holy Spirit. He also says in our current text, in verse 18, that the world will no longer see him. And what I want you to see is he's referring to the world. The world cannot receive the Holy Spirit. The world will not see him. And then he has told us in Galatians chapter 1 that he, that is Jesus Christ, has rescued us from this evil age of the world depending upon the translation that you're looking at. A little different word. But he's delivered us. He's rescued us. We further find in Scripture these instructions to us. You read one of them a moment ago. The Scriptures tell the believer that he is not to be conformed to this world. If you get nothing else, grab that one and try to do that this week. You are not to be conformed to this world, believer. We are also told in James chapter 4 this, 
friendship with the world, listen, if you are a friend to the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Be a friend to the world, you are an enemy of God, like it or not, black and white. We are told, James chapter 1, to keep ourselves unstained by the world. We are not to allow one part of the world, if you will, to drip on our garment to stain it as a Christian. None of it. We are not, if you will, to have a cup of coffee and a little bit spills on you. You'd have nothing that stains your Christian walk that's from the world. Nothing. We are told in 1 John chapter 2 that we are not to love the world, listen, nor the things of the world. Now that's pretty powerful already. And I don't know whether or not you're already uncomfortable or whether or not you're happy with that or whatever. But irregardless, those instructions are given to us. We're not to love it. We're not to conform to it. It's not to be our friendship. We're not to even be stained by it. And yet, the Scriptures also tell us we cannot avoid the sinners of the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If we were to avoid sinners, we'd have to get out of the world. We are further told, we're not there yet, but in John chapter 17, as the Lord prayed for his disciples and prayed for us, and by extension in that passage, that he did not want to take us out of the world. So we're not to be stained by it. We're not to be conformed to it. We're not to love it. We're not to see it as a friend, and yet we're not taken out of it. And we're not to avoid sinners. And further, according to Philippians chapter 2, we ought to let our lights shine in it. I'm confused. <laughs> How do we do this? How in the world do you still live here? Do you not get stained? Do you not get a friend with the world? Do you not love the things of the world? And yet you don't avoid sinners? And yet you let your light shine? How in the world do we do this? Well, if you'd like to sit down with me later and give me all the answers, I'll give a different message next week and you can help me out. But, in fact, we ought to do it. And I believe this balance that we ought to have is partly addressed, partly, because there's a lot more, but partly addressed in the context that's before us. And it's addressed by me asking this question right in the beginning. What does the world need to see in you if you are a professing believer? Listen, what do your neighbors need to see? What do your fellow workers need to see? What do your relatives need to see? That's my question, right? What does the world need to see? When it looks at believers, when it looks at disciples, when it looks at Christians. And as I said, I believe this text will give us some help in that regard and will address it. Remember in our context that Jesus was going away. Remember, number two, that he was encouraging his disciples. And simply remember, number three, he was going to use them, because that leads into this. <coughs> he was going to use them as his representatives on earth to be a witness and testimony for him while he was gone away. So what should the world see? Well, your outline will give it to you right away of where I'm going with it. Number one... The world should see when it looks at you, when it looks at me, when it looks at us collectively, Christianity, it should see our unity with Christ. Verses 18 through 20, let's look at it. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live in you you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am, look at the unity, in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Here's the stop. 
The first thing that I believe the world should see according to this context in our lives is the unity that we have with Christ. Now let me explain the text first. He would not leave them orphans, it says in Scripture. Usually when we think of an orphan, we think of someone who's been left parentless. Both parents have died or they've been left alone. They have no parents and so forth. Common Greek usage of this also used it in two other ways, and it's important to our text. One, it also used it in reference to just the loss of one parent. It was very common in Greek writing to refer to an orphan that had just lost one parent. But it also used it in this sense. You will find its usage in which a disciple lost his master. When the master was gone, the disciple was looked at as being an orphan. That was common in just any type of study. When the, when the master died, that disciple was considered an orphan. And that is the context that he's using it here. That with the Lord Jesus Christ going, he's saying, I'm not going to leave you as an orphan without still a master over you, without still someone there with you. In fact, the King James translates that comfortless or comforter or, or comfort. You'll find that in the usage. He says, I'm not going to leave you without comfort, or I'm not going to leave you comfortless. That's because the Holy Spirit is the comforter who's going to come. Okay, and God's still going to be with them. But let's first of all understand the context. He says, I'm not going to leave you alone. I will, that is Jesus Christ personally, I will come to you. Now, when is he going to come to them? That is debated in this passage, first of all, theologically. Is he going to come to them after the resurrection? Is he going to come to them in the rapture? Is he going to come to them in the second coming? Is he going to come to them when the Holy Spirit comes in his power? Many believe that because of verses 16 and 17 and further because of verses 25 and 26. What does he mean in the immediate context? I believe the simplest explanation in what he means when you look at verse 19 that helps explain it is he's referring to his resurrection. That's what he's saying. I will come to you. It's the simplest in the context. And that's why he says in verse 19, he says, after a little while, the world will no longer see me. He's referring to himself. The world won't see him. In fact, after his resurrection, to my knowledge, there was only one resurrection appearance to an unsaved individual. All the other references in Scripture of Christ post resurrection appearances were to believers first of all to his own disciples i will come to you after my resurrection the world will no longer see me when they crucify him and they bury him that's it they won't see him anymore but he says you will see me and then he's going to refer to the living by the way you'll find that he appeared to mary magdalene you find fate of mary his disciples, according to Corinthians, 500 at one time, all disciples. Well, then who in the world was the exception? The Apostle Paul. And that was a special appearance that he gave to him. But he appeared to him in an unsaved state and then called Paul, uh, at that time, Saul. All other appearances, from what we have recorded anyway in the Word of God, were to believers. And he's referring, I believe, simply to the resurrection. I will come to you. The world won't see me anymore. He's not, even after the resurrection, to appear to them. He's appeared to appear to believers. And he says up something else very significant first to understand the context. Because I live, you will live also. Future. Because Jesus Christ lives, they will live. If Jesus Christ just came to this world, died on the cross, and was buried, listen, you do not have a savior if it ends there you have no hope turn with me to first corinthians chapter 15 first corinthians chapter 15 and that's what he's telling them first corinthians chapter 15 we'll pick it up in verse 12 now if christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead how do some say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, 
Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. See that? Without the resurrection of Christ, it's empty. Your faith is also in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testify against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. If all you have is a person dying on a cross for your sins, staying in a grave, your faith is an empty faith. It's of no value whatsoever. By the way, that ought to say a lot about all the religions of the world today. Because there is only one faith that talks about someone that's gone to the grave, that bore their sin, and then he himself is already resurrected, and that is Jesus Christ, and that's Christianity. Muhammad in the grave. Buddha in the grave. Smith in the grave. On and on and on and on you, you go. The only one that has a risen Savior is Christianity. And because we have a risen Savior, we also shall live. Look at verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that, those who are Christ at his coming. And I'll stop right there. And what he's saying in John chapter 14 is this. I'm not going to leave you comfortless. First of all, I'm going to come back to you myself. The world's not going to see me. You will see me. And because I am living, you will also live. Not only have eternal life, but also resurrected life. So after the resurrection, that will occur. And he says this very important point in verse 20. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, notice the unity, and you are in me, and I am in you. You will know that. And my friend, the first thing I want to say to you is they will begin to comprehend the unity of the Godhead in them and also believers in Christ. It will be fully explained by the time we get to verses 25 and 26 and they will be reminded of it when the Holy Spirit comes. But the unity of believers to Christ is something that is to be seen by the world. The world did not see the resurrected Christ. The world doesn't see him now. In verse 17, the world can't even see and comprehend the Holy Spirit. But it does see you. And it does see me. And what is it seeing? <coughs> it should be seeing Christ in us. The hope of glory. That's what they should see. See, they couldn't see it. Even the apostles before the resurrection couldn't see it. Remember our context? I won't read them, but remember Philip's question in verses 8 and 9? Show us the Father. He says, you've missed it. I and the Father are one. You see me, you've seen the Father. You've seen the Father, you've seen me. And what people ought to see in believers is I united with Christ. We are called saints. Listen, as saints, we are separated ones. We are people who have been sanctified. We are people who have been called unto God. Yes, we're in the world, but we're separated. We're saints. We're sanctified. And our unity with Christ is what they should be seeing. It's demonstrated over and over in the Scripture. We're going to see some of them. He uses the vine and the branches a little later on. We'll get to that. He uses the body of Christ with Christ as the head to show our unity. We're the body, but he's the head. He refers to the household of God in reference to believers. He refers to us as the bride and the, and the groom in a, in a relationship. He refers to us as a spiritual house, all to point to the unity of Christ. The New Testament explodes with the words, in Christ, to be uh, a realization to us that we are in him and he's in us and the spirit's in us and the father's in us through him and we are to understand that first of all we are new creations go with me to a couple of passages you know second corinthians chapter 5 verse 17 and you're saying i know all of this pastor dan 
Is that what the world's seeing in you? When they look at you, do they see your unity with Christ? 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verse 17. You could quote it to me, probably. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, you say, I'm a believer. You say, I'm a Christian. I belong to Christ. If, therefore, you're in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. I absolutely get frightened when I see in my own life me wanting to go back to my old ways or anything that had to do with that old life. And yet believers are saturated with that. I get it in my own life. We're new creations. All things have become, uh, all things have passed away. Behold, all things or new things have now come. Go with me to Romans chapter 8. You know this one. Romans chapter 8. After Christ's resurrection, he would come to them and they needed to see the unity that they had with Christ and they weren't orphans. Christ was living in them and that's what the world needed to see. They couldn't comprehend the Holy Spirit. The world couldn't comprehend even the resurrected Christ, but the world would see them as his representatives and they should be seeing Christ in the believers. We all know verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Great. Look at verse 10. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of what? Righteousness. And that's what should be seen in the life. Go with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, I want you to see the first three verses. You again could probably quote verse 1 to me. Therefore, if you have been raised in Christ, you say you're a Christian, you say you've trusted in Christ, you say you're in union with Christ, you say you're a new creation, you say there's no condemnation, all of that is true if you're a believer. Keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Don't stop there. Set your mind, your thinking. How much of our thinking has been influenced by TV? How much of our inf uh, thinking has been influenced by the media? How much of our in influence to our thinking has been through, listen, religion of this world? He says, with our mind, set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Verse 3. For you have died. If you belong to Christ, you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's unity. What does the world see? Again, I ask. What does your neighbor see? Let me make it practical. When your neighbor sees you, what do they see? A good neighbor? State Farm is there. <laughs> that just came to my mind. I didn't intend that. I really didn't. Sorry, I apologize. You know I don't like the joke from the pulpit. I don't know why that came into my mind. But is that what they see, just a good neighbor? That had better not be all they see when they see you. When your relatives that are unsaved see you, do they just see a good moral person? How many of you have been baptized and quoted Galatians chapter 2, verse 20? Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Right? Is that what people see when they see you? Is Christ coming through your life? Listen to this. When Jesus walked the earth, what did they say? We know that you've come from God. Nicodemus said that, right? Nobody could do what you're doing. Some of them were sent to capture the Lord Jesus Christ. What did some others say? Never a man spoke like that one. This one speaks with authority. Not like the other religions. This one's different. Right? What did the soldier say? Truly, this was the Son of God. 
When Jesus Christ was on the earth, he continued to reflect his unity with the Father. So when they looked at him, they saw God. You say, but that's Jesus Christ. You remember this? In the book of Acts, I think it is. It's right off the top. I think it was the book of Acts. They took note that they had been with Jesus. When they looked at their life, they didn't say, that's a good neighbor. They said, they have been in the presence of Jesus Christ because I see it. What I'm saying to you is they need to see Christ in me. They need to see Christ in you, not just a good person, not just a moral person. Morality should be there. But they need to see that reflection of Christ that's dwelling in you in the Holy Spirit that we talked about last week coming through you. That's what they need to see. If everybody's patting you on the back and thinks you're the greatest neighbor because you knocked the snow off their roof, that's a wonderful thing. But if that's all they see, then you're not reflecting Christ the way you should be. Because they should see it in your attitude. They should see it in your thinking. They should see it in your speech. They should see it in the way you behave. They should see it in where you go. They should see it in what you do. They should see it. I try to maintain, uh, you know this, so I'm just open with it. I try to maintain as much as possible before the referee world that I have contact with. I don't want them telling me, you know, Dan's just a nice guy. If they tell me that, I've lost. I appreciate it more when a, when a referee calls me up and said, Dan, I got this. Could you pray for me? That means more to me. Because they're seeing more than just a moral person. That's what you want to have in your life. Someone that's looking at you that they see Christ. Well, you say, fine, okay. They, they want to see that unity. What else? How does that come about? How will they see Christ in me? That's the second point. By our obedience to God, verses 21 and 24. That's why Jesus comes back to it. That, that unity, watch what he says in 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one that loves me. You can say you love Jesus till you're blue in the face. If you're not walking according to his word, there's no evidence of it whatsoever. Verse 21, he says, He who keeps them is the one that loves me. And he who loves me, there's the unity again, will be loved of my Father. It's seen in obedience. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. I'll continue to reveal. Judas was concerned. This is Judas, not Iscariot. By the way, I was going to turn there, but I won't. If you want one of the references, it's Luke chapter 16. This Judas is also known as Thaddeus uh, Labius. And you'll find it in that passage. It's not Judas Iscariot. He says to him, Lord, what then has happened that you, are not, that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? What does Jesus come right back to? Look at verse 23. He answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. You're not going to be an orphan. <clears throat> it's going to be me and you and the Father and you and the Holy Spirit in you and us in one another. And your unity is going to be seen by the world. That's what they'll see. How are they going to see that? Verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode, our presence, our home. We'll wait till we get to chapter 15 on that one for more detail. And he who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but my Father's who sent me. Again, he comes right back to the unity. And you notice he's been talking about this all the way through. Obedience. Obedience. Now, for the sake of our audience, let me remind you, no one is saved by keeping commandments. No one. There is none righteous, no, not one. According to Ephesians, by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. According to Titus chapter 3, verse 5, we are saved not by our own works or by our deeds, but by His grace. We're not dealing with salvation. We're dealing with someone who says they're saved. And rather than get saved by good works, what happens is our obedience to the commands of God will be seen because we are believers. 
believers are called to obey. And it's an evidence of who we are. It's an evidence of salvation. Go with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Are you and I obeying? Do they see Christ in my life? Am I obeying the commands of God should be the question. 1 John chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. The one who says, I have come to know him. Let me make this real practical to you. What's he saying there? If you say you're a Christian, now watch, and does not keep his commandments, what about that profession of faith? Don't listen to Pastor Dan. Look at what the word says. That person is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Contrast, whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God, is a unity again, has truly been perfected. It's coming out. It's evidenced. So what the world should be seeing is our unity with Christ. How are they going to see that? By us obeying what the Word of God says. That's how it's practical. If we're not obeying what the Word of God says, there's no evidence, there's no reality. Parents don't want children to say, I love you, and then never do what the parents say. There's no evidence that they love them at all. You can tell your spouse you love them all you want. And if you don't demonstrate it, it's a joke. And they know it. That's what God's saying. You say, I'm a believer. We're not talking about legalism, by the way. I just want to address that. There are too many around that throw everything under the bus by the words legalism. Here we go again. I'm not talking about rules and regulations for Fellowship Bible Church or rules and regulations for your life. I'm talking about Christ ruling your life and you and I obeying what he says. That's not legalism. That's a demonstration of love. I want you to see something that I think personally is one of the things that's very, very rarely taught. You might be surprised by where I'm going. Turn with me to Matthew 28. Matthew chapter 28. You know where I'm going? Verses 19 and 20. The Great Commission. Watch. Go therefore and make disciples. Number one, what are we to do? A lot of people miss that. We had to make disciples. We're to be involved in preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ so people, that's what's involved, will come to Christ. Already, even this morning in the announcements, I've given you opportunities, very simple opportunities for you to invite people to hear the gospel and to have that presentation. Besides that, you should be witnessing yourselves, and so should I. We ought to make disciples. That's the first part of it. Now watch. Then he says, Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. These are all participles, by the way. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We get that. We need to tell people the gospel. We need to get them saved. We need to help them to grow in the faith. We need to get them baptized. Yes. And very rarely do I ever hear anybody talk about the third aspect. He doesn't stop there. Watch. Teaching them. Teaching them what? To observe all that I command you. That, my friend, you cannot have the Great Commission with verse, verse 19 with just the first participle and the second participle. It takes all three. We are to give them the message, we are to get them baptized, and then we are to teach them how to obey what God says. And the Christians are interested in one and two and then want to go their way and live like the world, in the world, for the world, and say they belong to Christ. 
He says, you go teach them to observe everything that I have told you. Now, let me make it simple or else we're going to be here all day. Well, Jesus Christ summarized that. That's easy, Pastor Dan. The two greatest commandments. Love God with all your heart, your whole soul, your whole mind, your whole being, right? Yes. Second one, love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. God summarized it and he said, didn't he say that? Didn't he say all the commandments hinge on those two? Yes. Yes, he did. So all I need to do is, all the world needs now is love. Well, wait a minute. Is that all that's commanded of us in the New Testament? Is that all the instruction that gave, he gave to us? Is that all the Sermon on the Mount of the Beatitudes meant? Let me try to make it practical for you. Are you poor in spirit? Are you gentle? You're told to do that. Are you hungering after righteousness? That was part of Jesus' instruction. Are you merciful? Am I merciful? Are we pure in heart? Are we peacemakers? Are we humble? Are we servants? You say, Pastor Dan, you're stuck in the Beatitudes. You're missing the whole point. Really? Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. By the way, if you don't know how to get around your Bible, that's all right. Don't be embarrassed. Turn to an index in the front. Take some time. But get there. Ephesians chapter 4. Let me just try to highlight some things for you quickly. Watch this. When we're told to obey Christ, how well do we do with this? Watch. Verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord. Now watch this. He's talking to believers. I implore you. What? Walk worthy of the manner of the calling which you have been called. What is that saying? You're a Christian. You say you're a Christian. Walk in a worthy manner. Well, what does that mean? Watch, verse 2, all humility, gentleness, patience, showing tolerance. How are you doing in this one? Showing tolerance for one another in love. Hmm. How are we doing in verse 3? Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. How are we doing? Doing okay? Verse 4, there is one body, one spirit, just as also you were called with one hope of your calling. How are you doing in the unity of the body? They say, ah, that's a little. How about verse 25? Let's go there. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, to his neighbor. How are you doing? For we are all members one of another. Say, I'm doing okay so far. How about verse 26? Be angry, but do not sin. Don't let the sun go down upon your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. <laughs> he who stole, steal no more. But rather he must labor, perform with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share. How are you doing with sharing what you do have? Say, I'm still doing okay. All right, how about verse 29? Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. I'm dead. I don't know about you. But only such a word is, is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it may render or give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. You say, I'm still doing good, Pastor Dan. How about verse 31? Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Still doing good? How about verse 32? Be kind one to another, tenderhearted. You say, I'm still doing good. Forgiving each other, I'm still doing okay. Just as God in Christ has forgiven you. These are commands, folks. Are we obeying these things in a practical way? How about chapter 5? Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, he says. Walk just as Christ loved you and gave himself an offering and sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. What does that mean? How about verse 3? But immorality, impurity, greed. Now watch this. He's talking to believers. Must not even be named. Never 
Should it ever be said of a believer, what? That he's greedy. Never should it be said of a believer that he's impure in any way. Verse 4, there must be no filthiness or silly talk, no coarse jesting, that which is fitting, rather, giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, no immorality or impure person and so forth that goes on. Turn with me for just a second. I'm running out of time with all these verses I got, but turn with me to your responsive reading. Go with me to Romans chapter 12. That's why I had that read. You say, you need to be practical, Pastor Dan. My friend, if you don't see the practicality of this, you have been sleeping. Romans chapter 12. Let's pick it up just in verse 9. That started with, you know, don't be conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind in verse 2. Look at verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Don't talk about love if you can't demonstrate it. Hate evil. Do you hate it when you see it on TV? Do you hate it when you see it entering into Christianity? Cling to what is good. How about verse 10? Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. How devoted are you? Let me just make you think this way. How many of you on this side are really devoted to those on that side? How many of you right here in this pew on this side are really devoted to believers on this side? How well are you doing, folks? We are called so that others might see Christ in us, and they're going to see it by that. Let's go on. It says that we ought to give preference to one another in honor. We're to be fervent in spirit. We're to be serving the Lord. We're to be rejoicing. We're to be preserving a persevering in tribulation. You say, I got all these kind of trials and I'm, and I'm losing it. You're supposed to be preser- uh, persevering. Devoted to prayer. How well is your prayer life? Contributing to the needs of the saints. Practicing hospitality. Why in the world do we have trouble having missionaries stay in homes? I'm going to share something with you. Now, first of all, in fairness to you as a congregation, we're not big enough. But we had a contact that was made with us regarding a group to come here, a group of young people, by the way, musical, who have performed in New York, they've performed in London, they've performed around the world, and they wanted to come and perform here at Fellowship Bible Church. Only one condition. They didn't care about anything else. We had to put up and house about 350 students. You know what? Couldn't do it, obviously, so now, now why'd you tell us about this? Because... We have trouble housing five people if they come and visit. In a congregation this size, we should be able to handle that without a problem. Demonstrating who we are. I'd wager, and I'm not a betting man, but to say this, let me say this, that I'll be guessing in this audience there's some of you that have never once ever hosted anybody that's passed through because you're too busy. That's not to put you in a guilt trip. Look at verse 14. How about when somebody persecutes you? Do you bless them or do you curse them? Do you rejoice with those who rejoice? Do you have the same mind one toward another? Do you never pay back evil for evil? Verse 17. That's part of what God expects of the believer. That's how Christ will be seen in your life, in my life. Put it to you this way. What do people see in my life? What do people see in your life? Do they see unity? Do they see joy? Do they see a life of thankfulness? Do they see a life of patience? Do they see a life versus on the wall where we're esteeming others better than ourselves, where we're putting other people first? Those are the commands of God for the believer. He who loves me will keep my commandments. Or do they look at our life and what they see is bitterness? You tell me if this is not a true picture of Christianity. An unforgiving spirit? The teens went away on a retreat. I asked my daughter a little bit about it and so forth. And uh, she was sharing some of the things. 
And that was one of the things apparently was shared, how Christians for months and years hold things against other Christians. That's a bitter spirit. That's not obedience to God's commands. A complainer, do they see a person who gives thanks? When people rub elbows with you and they listen to your speech, do they hear you always complaining about something that's wrong or do they hear a thankful spirit about what God's doing in your life? I don't know. Every time that you start talking, do they see a spirit of God that's submitted to the things of God or do they see, listen, a suspicious spirit when you're talking with other people? What, what, what really went on? Give me the whole story. What happened there? That's true. Believers, while they're saying, oh, my walk couldn't be any better, you don't know who you are. Do they see a life who everything has to be done your way because you've got it right all the time? If you don't bake a cake this way, it's wrong. If you don't change a diaper this way, it's wrong. If you don't do this, it's wrong. That's the way true Christians are. That's not people walking with God. You know, it's practical. How will we be seen? Does the world see Christ in our life, our unity with him? That's what they should see. How are they going to see that? What I'm saying to you is by are obeying his commands. I have to share this with you. I had our grandchildren with us yesterday, some of them. Oh, I, I was delighted. It happened to be, my daughter's not here, so it was her birthday, and so her and her two sisters went away, and they did snowboarding and, and whatever, and I was, I was thrilled and, and whatever, because I had the young, young grandchildren. And we had a ball with them, my wife and I yesterday, really did. And we're in, and they like to listen to tapes. We, t- we took them out, we wanted to grab a bite to eat, flipped in the tape and so forth. And guess what came on the tape, on the song? It it was, do all things without complaining. It was beautiful. Because my two grandchildren said, we don't like that part of the tape. (laughs) That's what they said. (laughs) They said, we don't like that song. Can we skip over that one? (laughs) Do all things without complaining. While Linda and I were saying, this is great. You listening to what it's saying? And that's how we are in our Christian life. (laughs) Right? When we come to the verse that says, do all things without complaint. Well, I don't like that one. Just give me another one. Say, I need to love my neighbor as myself, you know, whatever. You get the point. Out of the mouth of babes. And by the way, I laughed at that. And then I was brought under conviction because I knew what I studied. And I'm saying, that's just the way I am. When I come across a passage that tells me how to obey God and how to forgive someone else and how to not think you know, I didn't get to, I was going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love, true Christian love, when we talk about that, believes all things. It's not a suspicious mind. True Christian love is one that puts others first. It's one obeys God. My time's gone. I will just give it to you this way. Verses 25 and 26. It's also by, how, do we, how can I obey God? The third aspect is by yielding to the Holy Spirit. It's the only way. We cannot do it in our own power. What the world needs to see is our unity with the Father, our unity with the Son, and our unity with the Spirit. The only way that they'll see that is when they see us obeying God. And the only way that it's possible to obey God It's because he's given us the Holy Spirit, and as we yield to the Spirit of God, that's Galatians, which I didn't get to either. Galatians clearly says, when we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Within us, within the world, is the desire to go back to sin. In the Godhead is the desire to please him. And I have to set my mind and my thinking on things above yielded the Spirit of God, and he told them pretty openly that the Spirit of God would remind them of this when he came, and he would be their teacher. He would be their guide. Our life should be a sign, a sign that points people not to a good neighbor, but a sign just like John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. 
Our life should be a light to the world that shines so that people don't see a halo over us. They see Christ coming through us. Then they'll be attracted to your life. Then they'll be attracted to the local assembly. Then they'll be attracted to our Savior. My God, help us to be the people that we ought to be. Let's pray. Our Father in God, I stand here praying with the people of God, even fearing in my own life, all too often, Father, fail to reflect the unity with Christ that I have in trusting in you for salvation. Oh, Father, help us. Help us all to be people that are obedient to the word. Yes, we need to make disciples. Yes, we need to get people baptized. But Father, we need to teach them to observe all things that you've commanded. We need to teach them in the practical areas of life how to walk like Christ, Christ walked, how to be Christ-honoring in all that we do. Father, I pray that you'd help each one of us right here to examine our own hearts. Lord, we thank you and praise you so much that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not a guilt trip, Father. It's just a matter of examining then confessing sin and walking with you. But Father, we so confess that we don't have the ability or power in our own life to do it. We need to yield to the Spirit of God. Father, help each one of us to do that. Might your name be magnified through our life. We thank you for the privilege of not leaving us orphans, of not leaving us without help. But Father, we thank you for leaving us as a witness for Christ and help us to be that mirror that causes people to see your face. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we have our closing song, I just want to remind you we do want to have a brief meeting. It's, it's a